Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you the latest from Dublin, London and Brussels. We're focusing on the UK this week, of course, because there's less than a week to go until polling day. And less than a week for Boris Johnson to reverse the Bojo no-show jibes from the BBC's Andrew Neil, whose show he's blanking apparently to avoid a one-on-one grilling. But he will face off against Jeremy Corbyn tonight in the last head-to-head debate where the Labour leader will have to inflict some serious damage if he's to close the gap in the polls between his party and the Conservatives. But first, this morning, for anyone listening on a Friday, Sean, shortly before we spoke in preparation for this podcast and I went off to attend a meeting, a PDF dropped into your inbox... What's in it, what's it called, and what's its significance? Well, the, the PDF is uh, courtesy of the Labour Party who got hold of it, but actually it's a Treasury uh, internal briefing document uh, on the Northern Ireland Protocol, marked official sensitive, so uh, we're probably not supposed to have a, uh, a look at this. But nevertheless, we love things that are marked official and sensitive, don't we? Absolutely, uh, we spend a bit more time on it as a result. Indeed, it's a, a set of slides drawn up, uh, presumably by Treasury officials, talking about the uh, impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol in the Withdrawal Agreement Bill and uh, what it might actually mean on a practical basis for the implementation of uh, all things Treasury, which is, uh, in this context, uh, customs uh, regulations principally, uh, and also compliance with international law around that. So it's uh, been looking at this commitment in Article 6 of that protocol. Nothing in the protocol shall prevent the United Kingdom from ensuring unfettered market access for goods moving from Northern Ireland to other parts of the United Kingdom's internal market. This is a key promise, uh, particularly to uh, unionist politicians. Uh, that nothing that will be done in that protocol uh, would have the effect of reducing the uh, market access for things produced in Northern Ireland. So that's the political promise, but how how does that work out in practical terms? And that's what this set of slides looks at. And right Um, on on that set of slides, there's up in the top right corner on the same page you read from, page two of it, there's a rather uh, kinky little graphic of a set of handcuffs and underneath it says significant policy questions remain for the UK. So run us through what things occur to you as policy questions. Well, VAT is one of them. uh, and That's something that uh, a lot of Irish businesses have been focusing in on right from the get-go back in 2016. How does this impact on their VAT dealings uh, with the Northern Ireland market, but more particularly uh, the British market in general? Uh, Then there's the questions uh, of customs declarations, uh, customs checks, checks on uh, SPS, this is the uh, veterinary uh, and plant uh, health goods. Sanitary uh, and phytosanitary to give it its full name. Good man, you've done this stuff before, haven't you? I have. It's, I know a uh, fellow called Tony Connolly. We've talked about it before. These are the kind of technicalities though that they need to get their head around uh, in the Treasury and, and I guess in the uh, EU side as well. What they're pointing out here are the key variables as well. Trade friction east to west. That means British goods moving into uh, Northern Ireland depends on negotiations with the EU and uh, that they have 
bullet points here, zero tariff free trade uh, agreement, regulatory alignment, customs slash other regulatory facilitations, and the joint committee assessment on goods at or not at risk. This joint committee, of course, being uh, the body that's going to uh, arbitrate between the UK and the EU uh, after Britain leaves the European Union. Uh, so this, this uh, I guess, unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who are going to be making decisions uh, about what can or cannot be done uh, in the uh, trade terms between the EU and the UK. Then they're also looking at trade frictions uh, west to east. That's goods moving from the island of Ireland uh, to uh, Great Britain. Uh, depends, it says here, on UKG, UK government, unilateral measures, but also WTO rules and negotiations with the EU. Uh, and first bullet point here is UK government's appetite for risk. Uh, then there's uh, Union Custom Code, Export Procedures, Safety and Security Documentation, and then uh, uh, compliance with various international uh, agreements like CITES, the Protection of Endangered Species uh, Regulations, or the Kimberley Process about uh, diamonds, diamonds. Making sure they're not blood diamonds. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, on, the, on, on, on page eight, there are some quite standout figures. It goes through some of the potential fetters and it looks at customs declarations um, for import and for export. It has yes to both of them. It has rules of origin. It has safety and security, as you say, and regulatory checks. But on page eight, something that jumps out, exports. It says 98% of Northern Ireland exporters to GB are SMEs, small and medium enterprises, who are likely to struggle to bear this cost. Yeah, and that's always been a problem for exporters from the island of Ireland to uh, Great Britain. Uh, there's quite a chunk of it gets done by the small guys. Uh, the big boys able to absorb uh, these kind of costs. They have systems for dealing with it. You think about the multinational sector in particular uh, in Ireland. Their trade is global. Their trade systems, uh, operations, computers, uh, technical staff, they're used to dealing with the paperwork and uh, they can absorb it given the uh, huge volumes of trade that they do. Uh, and what they're talking about here are customs declarations, uh, documentary and physical checks on West East and East West trade will be highly disruptive to the NI economy. I mean, that's what the British Treasury is saying, will be highly disruptive. Uh, they're also saying there is therefore a clear case for reducing the bur burden on NI traders, who, as you point out, most of the traders uh, are uh, SMEs, some of them even micro-traders. Uh, the big businesses, though, uh, there's about 2% of businesses, they account for about 40% of the exports. So it's only a couple of firms are responsible for a huge chunk of the value of the trade. So they probably won't have any difficulty, uh, or relatively speaking, won't have much difficulty dealing with the uh, any additional restrictions. But right. it's the smaller guys who will, and they're, they're looking at what kind of reliefs that the government can give them. The other thing that stands out here for me, though, is uh, on imports. It says high street goods likely to increase in price. So the consumer is getting hit in the pocket there. Absolutely. And if the consumer gets hit in the pocket, that means the businesses are less profitable. And that means key employment sectors such as retail likely to be hit, says the UK Treasury. It says the, the effect of all this additional regulation would be tariff equivalents on 30% of purchases in Northern Ireland. Right. So that's quite a hit to the NI economy. Right. So let's what can they do about it? Let's hit page nine then, because presumably one of the questions to Boris Johnson would be, have you budgeted for a compensation package or an amelioration package for, for Northern Ireland? And seeing as this has been sold as the best deal ever for Northern Ireland, the answer to that presumably is no if this arrives, arises in tonight's debate. 
but macroeconomic impact uh, on the next page, page nine, Northern Ireland represents just 2% of the UK economy, which might give us some insight into why this hasn't been looked at really as a political consideration. And regional impact, it says localised impacts are not yet fully understood. So in other words, this is a great unknown. We don't know how bad this will be for Northern Ireland, but according to the Treasury, it will be bad. Well, it's kind of not surprising given the haste in which this uh, deal was put together. Essentially, I mean, the, the publicly known bit of it was those uh, three hours in the Wirral uh, a couple of weeks back uh, with, with Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar. Uh, but they did move quite quickly on trying to get uh, some kind of an arrangement in place uh, at a political level, but now they have to catch up and fill in all the details. And yes, that there are a lot of unknowns here, and that's what this document is pointing out. Uh, it also points out the very small size of the uh, Northern Ireland economy relative to the rest of the UK, uh, that the import-export trade, very, very big for Northern Ireland business community, uh, very small for the uh, generality of the UK. I mean, 2% of the UK economy is Northern Ireland. Wales is 4%. Scotland, about 9%. And when they're talking about localised impacts not fully understood, it's the relationship between business flows, trade flows between Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales that they're somewhat concerned about. And they need to do more research on it, according to their own uh, documents, uh, because they say that the Scottish and Welsh governments have both expressed displeasure at Northern Ireland exceptionalism and its partition participation in the EU single market and there's likely to be strong pushback right. against any perceived advantages to Northern Ireland business. So politically, uh, it's going to be an awkward one. And uh, page 10 then, fiscal, it basically says there's going to be smuggling. It says, with no controls, north, south or east, west, Northern Ireland could become a backdoor into the GB market for the avoidance of import duties. Even with the zero tariff UK-EU free trade agreement, the risk would remain for third country country goods and goods which don't meet origin requirements so that the great warning over smuggling uh, is there as well but as you mentioned there political difficulty political difficulty presumably with Northern Ireland parties particularly the DUP because it says internal market political and constitutional issues racing ahead to page 12 the high level effects the the withdrawal agreement has the potential and here's this is a verbatim quote to separate Northern Ireland in practice from whole swathes of the UK's internal market unfettered access has the potential to undermine the coherence of the UK internal market and embed a fundamental asymmetry in its functioning. That's not going to go down well. It's not going to go down well. Uh, So the political calculus has to be, uh, is it worth taking this risk uh, with uh, Northern Ireland politics? And who benefits from the leaking of this document now? I mean, you would imagine uh, perhaps it would buoy up the DUP uh, in their uh, political uh, struggles. Will it have much impact here uh, in uh, Great Britain. Uh, Not so sure about that. Uh, Northern Ireland never figured in the debate, as we know, in the lead into Brexit. It didn't figure much afterwards until uh, the Northern Ireland border issue uh, cropped up as the central uh, tough problem uh, to resolve. Uh, It was left right to the last minute as the last thing to be resolved in the withdrawal agreement bill. And now here's Labour coming along uh, hours before that uh, leadership debate, the final leadership debate in the general election. What kind of impact might this document have uh, on that debate? Well, I guess it's a a shot for Labour saying, once more, listen, you can't trust Boris Johnson on things. Uh, Here he is uh, effectively selling out uh, his Northern Ireland DUP allies, the people that were supporting uh, the government until uh, a couple of months ago. 
he's prepared to, to shove them under the bus. What else will he do? What else is he not telling us about? Uh, and it's that chipping away at the perception of uh, trust and honesty uh, over Boris Johnson. Uh, that's the main, I think, uh, reason why the Labour Party are, are pushing this one out now. Yeah, there's a number of impacts and risks um, being assessed there, but it has Northern Ireland effectively outside the UK internal market, GB only market. Northern Ireland at a competitive disadvantage in the UK internal market and, and much, much more. So well, I suppose if Labour are making this a plank this morning in Jeremy Corbyn's press conference earlier, presumably this is going to come up and be hammered by Jeremy Corbyn in the debate tonight. Boris Johnson can't be looking forward to this. No, but Boris Johnson hasn't been looking forward to uh, anything that puts him under the microscope and uh, uh, deviates away from his core message of get Brexit done, which is a nice, simple three-word uh, soundbite to keep repeating over and over and over. Uh, it is the central message uh, of the Conservatives in this election. Once you start going beyond that, uh, you get into the detail not perhaps Mr Johnson's strongest uh, hand uh, is detail and it also gets a bit awkward when uh, people start exposing you as uh, having effectively undermined one of your, your previous allies. But then again, there's a fair chunk of people in this country who just don't care about those sort of things. Uh, the details don't seem to matter and uh, opinion polling evidence previously had shown if it's a question between protecting Northern Ireland or getting Brexit done, most Conservative voters certainly uh, would be quite happy to get Brexit done over keeping Northern Ireland in the U, uh, United Kingdom. So uh, there may not be uh, many votes for Labour in pushing this particular issue uh, in the election uh, as a Northern Ireland issue, uh, perhaps on the question of uh, can you trust Boris Johnson as a Prime Minister. But uh, in terms of defending Northern Ireland, probably not going to cut much ice amongst English voters, certainly. It'd be interesting to see whether there's any blowback here that the Irish government okayed the withdrawal agreement as well when such detrimental effects are being predicted by uh, Her Majesty's Treasury in that particular document that's come out today. But the focus would probably stay on the UK, seeing as it's coming in the middle uh, of an election campaign. There has been an attempt, Sean, as you were saying, People may not be engaging in the details, but there has been an attempt to manage every single detail in terms of media management in the UK this week. The NATO summit earlier, Boris Johnson was trying to studiously avoid being seen with Donald Trump, lest any credence be given to Jeremy Corbyn's accusation that a deal was being cooked up in advance of a UK-US trade deal that would see the NHS put on the table in the interests of cementing a deal on trade with the US. Yeah, and this is one of the key uh, charges against the uh, Conservative government uh, and Boris Johnson in particular uh, is this issue of the National Health Service. It's become fetishised in British politics and it actually becomes quite difficult to debate uh, real issues uh, and real problems in the National Health Service uh, and the costs of it and the uh, viability of it over the medium to long term. Uh, but uh, in the context of this election, well, uh, everything is uh, fair game uh, for being used and uh, the NHS uh, Labour seem to have credibility on it and can use this issue uh, against the Conservatives. But yeah, Donald Trump coming to town um, a week before the election, it wasn't planned, of course. I mean, this was all set up uh, much earlier in the year that th there would be a NATO summit uh, here 
uh, in uh, London, apparently uh, because they couldn't have it in Washington at the actual timing of the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty, uh, because uh, at that stage Mr. Trump uh, was um, going through one of his anti-NATO uh, phases and the Allies weren't wholly comfortable about what he might or might not say if he had possession of the bully pulpit of the uh, chairmanship of the event. So they decided, uh, play safe, go to London, the first headquarters of NATO, uh, when it was set up. And uh, Boris Johnson uh, declined the opportunity um, to really use the NATO summit uh, as something that he could um, use for electoral purposes. Uh, unusually, though, I mean, you would normally expect a bilateral meeting between the summit host uh, and the President of the United States, uh, but that wasn't arranged, uh, and people think it's because they didn't want to have that photo opportunity, those two leaders sitting in golden chairs, uh, being asked a whole bunch of questions, um, and being seen to be too close to Donald Trump. Um, I guess Mr. Trump would have been uh, alerted to this for many months through the uh, official and unofficial channels between London and Washington, and uh, pretty much played his part. He uh, looked like he was going to get into a big fight with the French president uh, over his brain-dead NATO uh, remarks. Uh, he didn't really, uh, because remember back to August, the bromance that was going on down in Biarritz between the two of them. So uh, if in doubt, beat up the Canadian, uh, seems to be the default uh, thing here it was Mr. Right. Trudeau who the Canadian put his hand up for it, in fairness. Him. Well, he did. Uh, you know, you've got to wonder that bit of tape coming out. Um, it was rather convenient for uh, for the summit hosts as well, because it apparently caused uh, Mr. Trump to cancel his final uh, summit <laughs> press conference. So uh, maybe Mr. Johnson is a lucky general after all, uh, that things like this tend to, uh, to happen to him, uh, that uh, the president gets offended by uh, this uh, mysterious bit of tape that shouldn't have been uh, aired at all, right. and uh, then storms out in a flounce. Right. Or maybe well, I'm just being too conspiratorial. Well, in the unlikely event that people didn't hear it, here's here's the, the tape. First, you'll hear Justin Trudeau. What he's saying is, is that the press conference went on for 40 minutes, and then in response to other things, uh, Mr. Trump's staff, were, their jaws nearly hit the floor, and he seemed to be laughing with Princess Anne, Mark Rutte, Emmanuel Macron, and Boris Johnson. Uh, they're exchanging what would seem to be humorous remarks at Donald Trump's expense, and you'll hear Donald Trump's response to that. He's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I told him out of the fact that he's not paying 2%. And I guess he's not very happy about it. Well, that took the sting out of the NATO summit. But there is another uh, piece of tape that could be causing Boris Johnson some embarrassment. Nothing huge. Let's hear from the BBC's Andrew Neil, who was calling out Boris Johnson over not appearing on his programme. There is, of course, still one to be done. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. We have been asking him for weeks now to give us a date, a time, a venue. As of now, none has been forthcoming. No broadcaster can compel a politician to be interviewed, but leaders' interviews have been a key part of the BBC's primetime election coverage for decades. We do them on your behalf to scrutinise and hold to account those who would govern us. That is democracy. We've always proceeded in good faith that the leaders would participate and in every election, they have. All of them. Until this one. 
It is not too late. We have an interview prepared, up and ready, as Mr. Johnson likes to say. The theme running through our questions is trust, and why at so many times in his career in politics and journalism, critics and sometimes even those close to him have deemed him to be untrustworthy. It is, of course, relevant to what he is promising us all now. Can he be trusted to deliver 50,000 more nurses when almost 20,000 in his numbers are already working for the NHS? He promises 40 new hospitals, but only six are scheduled to be built by 2025. Can he be believed when he claims another 34 will be built in the five years after that? Can he be trusted to fund the NHS properly when he uses a cash figure of an extra 34 billion pounds? After inflation, the additional money promised amounts to 20 billion. He vows that the NHS will not be on the table in any trade talks with America. But he vowed to the DUP, his unionist allies in Northern Ireland, that there would never be a border down the Irish Sea. That is as important to the DUP as the NHS is to the rest of us. It is a vow his Brexit deal would seem to break. Now he tells us he's always been an opponent of austerity. We would ask him for evidence of that. And we would want to know why an opponent of austerity would bake so much of it into their future spending plans. We would ask why, as with the proposed increase in police numbers, so many of his promises only take us back to the future, back to where we were before austerity began. Social care is an issue of growing concern. On the steps of Downing Street in July, he said he'd prepared a plan for social care. We'd ask him why that plan is not in his manifesto. Questions of trust. Questions we'd like to put to Mr. Johnson so you can hear his replies. But we can't because he won't sit down with us. There is no law, no Supreme Court ruling that can force Mr. Johnson to participate in a BBC leader's interview. But the Prime Minister of our nation will, at times, have to stand up to President Trump, President Putin, President Xi of China. So it was surely not expecting too much that he spent half an hour standing up to me. Good night. Sean, give us the background to this Andrew Neil call-out of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. What's happened here? How did it get to this point of breakdowns in relations? Or what, how would you describe what's gone on here between Andrew Neil and Boris Johnson, this cat-and-mouse game to get him in for an interview? Well, it's not just Andrew Neil; It's actually the BBC itself. Strangely enough, today, uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been accusing the BBC of anti-Labour bias, but... Uh, in terms of going after the Prime Minister, look, they set up this uh, series of interviews uh, between uh, Andrew Neil and the uh, party leaders, and they'd all agreed to it, and Labour said they'd agreed to it on the basis that Boris Johnson had agreed to it. Uh, but uh, the official excuse is, we just can't find the time. Now, you've got people like the BBC's political uh, editor going on social media saying, we have the studio booked 24-7, we're completely available any time, you just tell us when you're available. We understand you're very busy. All we need is half an hour of your time. Come on in. We'll do it anytime. Uh, but nothing. And you can understand it from a media management point of view. These are very tough interviews. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn had an awful time of it. Uh, he was badly cut out. Much of it of his own making, it has to be said, on the anti-Semitism issue. Uh, Joe Swinson got quite a mauling earlier in the week. But on social media, a lot of people were coming out saying, look, she may have got hammered, 
but at least she had the guts to turn up and face Andrew Neil. And this is the thing that's been playing now over the past two or three weeks here, that Boris Johnson hasn't got the guts to face the toughest interviewer on British television. And the longer that this has gone on, the more the name-calling uh, has gone on. Uh, he's yellow, he's a chicken, he's a coward, etc., etc. Bottom line, he won't face this guy. Now, if you're one of the, the Tory campaign managers, you'd rather take the chicken insults than take the potential of being ripped apart on television. It's important for your prime minister to look prime ministerial. And as we said earlier, details, policy details, uh, are not Boris Johnson's strong suit. He can come a cropper on these things, and Andrew Neil uh, will go through them uh, forensically. He he outlined some of the, the, the uh, questioning areas uh, in that calling out, that lengthy calling out that he did uh, last night uh, on TV. Uh, quite extraordinary stuff, uh, and the social media versions of it have, have really gone viral. So it is an issue in the campaign, there's no doubt. Uh, it's almost certain to crop up again in the leaders' debate uh, when it happens on Friday night. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not playing well for Mr. Johnson. There's no doubt about and, that. And has Mr. But Johnson... in the percentages game that we're in... Well, in, I was just going to say, in the percentages game that we're in in this election, there's really not much in it for him uh, to go on there and get potentially filleted uh, by Andrew Neil. Uh, he's probably better off just riding this one out for the next few days, not upsetting the apple cart, uh, not giving any hostages to fortune, um, and just tough it out. And in a, a couple of weeks, it'll have been forgotten about by most people. Has he been grilled on a number of issues that have come up about him in the past, when he was mayor of London, when he was uh, a backbench MP, like losing jobs as a result of lying to editors, about lying to his party leader, Michael Howard, about an extramarital affair, about uh, lying to Conrad Black over his intentions uh, to run for office, about listening to his friend Darius Guppy looking for the address of a journalist he wanted to have beaten up and not trying to stop Darius Guppy from going down this path even though the, the, the planned assault never happened. Has he been called on any of these things since becoming Prime Minister? I think people have had a go at one or two of these items but not in the systematic, uh, thorough way uh, that Andrew Neil would have done. I mean, we saw a, a touch of that in the Joe Swinson interview earlier in the week where he ran through her voting record uh, when uh, the Liberals were uh, part of the coalition government with the Conservatives. A whole lot of very unpopular austerity measures and saying, who voted for that? Yes, I voted for that. And going through it one after another. And it's a really uncomfortable thing. It's uncomfortable to watch. It must be excruciating to actually have to be fessing up to all of this kind of stuff. Now, that's just a voting record of a backbench uh, MP uh, in uh, Parliament during a fairly tough economic time. The list that you've just read out on Boris Johnson, and that's only part of it, by the way, uh, it could be a very lengthy uh, interrogation. Uh, it could be a very excruciating time uh, for him to watch. But when you, any one of these charges that have been put to him, yes, he's able to Boris his way out of it, as it were, and try and um, make jokes and try and evade it as best he can. But when you add them all up, one on top of the other, the cumulative effect could be quite damaging to him. Uh, and that's why uh, the campaign managers are trying to keep him away from it, even though, of course, they won't admit that thing, such a thing uh, in public. But it's not like Andrew Neil doesn't know uh, where the prime minister lives, his most famous address in the world. But also Andrew Neil is the chairman of the Spectator magazine, uh, where Boris Johnson used to be the editor. And the current deputy editor of the Spectator is married to Dominic Cummings, 
uh, Boris Johnson's um, campaign and other uh, advisor. So, uh, you know, they're, they're all very close and connected in here. Uh, they all know uh, who everybody is, uh, and that's part of the, the issue here. Um, Boris Johnson knows exactly what he'd be getting from Andrew Neil, and Andrew Neil probably knows where the bodies are buried when it comes to Boris Johnson and uh, is now in a position where everybody expects him to go digging for those bodies. So uh, it's not in Boris Johnson's interest to go and do this interview. He's, I think, prepared to just take the pain of the name-calling. Well, as you say, he's he has a, a lead in the polls, the poll of polls in Politico, the uh, Financial Times analysis of polls as well, puts the Conservatives around 10 points ahead of uh, Labour at this stage. The debate happens tonight. What happens at this debate? What does Jeremy Corbyn have to do? Are debates game changers in that way that could uh, advance the the progress of the Labour Party? It, it hasn't been at the Tories' expense so far. It's been squeezing the Lib Dems rather than taking votes off the Tories. Yeah, and it's the, the, the Tory gains have been squeezing the Brexit Party. Uh, so it's hard to see how the debates uh, are going to swing it one way or the other. Uh, in American presidential debates, it's perhaps a bit more important because the politicians aren't generally nationally known figures and they become nationally known figures through those debates. It's rather different in the parliamentary system uh, here in the UK where the, the party leaders are well known. Their party lines uh, are well known, certainly by this stage after weeks of campaigning. Uh, everybody has uh, got the key messages, or pretty much everybody. And you'd have to wonder as well, towards the end of a political campaign, how many people are going to be interested enough uh, to tune in and stick with a debate like this. And also in this heavily managed age of media presentation, uh, the leaders are going to be pretty disciplined uh, by their backroom teams about what to say and what not to say. And also, they're not really in control of the process. And it's not even the BBC who, who are that much in control, because most of the questions that are becoming tonight are audience questions. So they've presumably researched a panel uh, of people to ask a series of questions that they think are the most uh, interesting ones. But it's different from uh, uh, an Andrew Neil type grilling, and it's different from a head-to-head, uh, go at it, set your own agenda uh, type of debate as well. Right. So I think the opportunities to land killer blows are going to be uh, fairly minimal. Uh, both of them have their strengths and weaknesses, and they pretty much cancel each other out. Uh, I don't see any anything spectacular happening at this stage, uh, unless... They produce something utterly spectacular, and it really would have to be spectacular, I think, to shift the polls at this stage. Right. Well, we've had that um, Her Majesty's Treasury document on the impact of the withdrawal agreement on Northern Ireland um, and to a certain extent the rest of the UK as well. But a document that hasn't come to light is the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee's report on Russian interference in UK politics. You've been talking to somebody about that. Who have you been talking to? And tell us the background to the report and, and who you've been talking to about it. Well, I've been talking to Dominic Grieve, who uh, was the outgoing chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Now, this is a, a committee of the, the UK Parliament, but it's a small committee. Um, very few members on it. Uh, they're all solid establishment types. There's no... Uh, looseness around this one because uh, it, it deals with the intelligence services and there's a high level of accountability and a lot of very sensitive material goes through the committee. Uh, so they run a pretty tight ship there, uh, but they do take their job of 
accountability pretty seriously as well, given the uh, responsibilities that they have uh, to try and oversee um, what is essentially secret work uh, by intelligence uh, agencies. But one of the things they did hold uh, uh, hearings into, and they were closed-door hearings because of the nature of the work, uh, was uh, Russian uh, interference, stroke attacks, cyber attacks, um, unconventional warfare, political interference, uh, use of uh, social medias, etc., etc. Uh, that report was finished and ready and just required prime ministerial sign-off for publication. Uh, but at the very end of the parliament, one of the very last things that was asked uh, was uh, a question from Dominic Grieve about when was this going to be published. And uh, he's been back at it once or twice uh, during the campaign because it should have been out by now. Uh, it hasn't been released and he really wants to know why. Uh, here's what he said when I caught up with him down in his uh, Beaconsfield constituency during the week. Well, I can't comment on the content of the report. This is a cross-party committee. It's non-partisan. Uh, it's also very rational and not sensationalist. Uh, we had a report. We had cleared it with the intelligence agencies. We had cleared it with the National Security Secretariat. If the Prime Minister had an overriding objection to its publication, and he has a right to, he should have called me in and told me what it was. He didn't. He gave a series of explanations that were bogus and dishonest. I have no idea why he chose not to publish it. Uh, you have to ask him. Uh, but the simple fact is, is that the, the justification for not doing it does not stack up at all. But the report itself concerned Russian interference in elections specifically or just influence? No, it was a wider report on, on Russia, Russian espionage, Russian subversion. Uh, didn't just concern Russia as a challenge and whether we had the suitable responses. I want to emphasise this. It wasn't a report simply looking at electoral subversion, although we do know that Russia in other countries has attempted to subvert elections. That is very well established. So I think it would have been useful for the public here to have this report. Um, and I, that's the only point I make. And it would have been useful to have had it uh, at a time when an election was taking place. And we had gone to a great deal of effort to make sure that it was in a publishable form. And my complaint is that the Prime Minister has not provided an explanation, credible explanation, and indeed has told, frankly, untruths, things which cannot be sustained about his reasons for not allowing it to go ahead and be published. Well, that was Dominic Grieve. Uh, he used to be a Conservative MP, but he lost the whip uh, as part of that clean out of the gang of 21 uh, who were uh, d dissenting from Boris Johnson's uh, policies on Brexit. He's now standing as uh, an independent in the Beaconsfield constituency, uh, if essentially trying to overturn his own previous parliamentary majority of 24,000 votes. Uh, Beaconsfield is a place that just says one million percent Tory as soon as you move into it. So it'll be pretty hard uh, for him uh, to win there. Uh, but he is one of the, the few members of that uh, gang of 21 stroke 22 uh, rebels after Amber Rudd joined them, uh, not having lost the whip, but voluntarily renouncing it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a tough one for him, but a very interesting one because he's represented that uh, constituency for 22 years. He's been a, a, an attorney general. Uh, he's well-known politician nationally and uh, essentially he's taking a stand uh, against Boris Johnson and uh, not just the conduct of his Brexit policy but also I think uh, the nature of uh, the man himself. Right well somebody else who's taking a stand against Boris Johnson closer to home in his own constituency of Uxbridge and South Royslip is Count Binface. I think we're, we're going to get him to play us out today. Who is he Sean? Well, he uh, was 
the artist formerly known as Lord Buckethead, who had contested many uh, an election and by-election, uh, variously under the uh, guise of the Monster Raving Looney Party. I'm not sure whether it was official or unofficial. Uh, he seems to have run into uh, a copyright issue, however, over the character Lord Buckethead and is being sued by uh, a video games company. So for this election, he has metamorphosized into Count Binface, and he's produced uh, uh, his own bit of uh, election material. He's standing against Boris Johnson, who is, uh, lest we forget, defending the smallest majority any uh, Prime Minister has had in this country since 1924. It's about 5,000 uh, vote uh, majority. So uh, Labour have been concentrating a lot of firepower in Mr Johnson's own Uxbridge and South Wyslip constituency to try and unseat him. But uh, maybe they haven't uh, counted on the electoral appeal of uh, Count Binface. Here he is. Take, take it, it away, away. Binface. Together we'll bring Pong King Pong.